0: You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co Main Event Mixed Martial Arts podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists and for the last 9 years, we've been meeting here every single week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Uh Ben, we had a pretty jam-packed weekend in the MMA world. Both the UFC and Bellator put on events. Uh, some controversy with the ratings this Monday afternoon or Tuesday afternoon. I'm sorry, as we record this this podcast, we are going to get into that, I would assume, uh, coming up in these, in these rounds later in the show. But uh, first, I just wanted to get your overall impression. You know, when you've got two dueling MMA events on the same night between the two biggest promotions in America, it's a little bit of a throwback feel in some ways to... Uh, you know, the days before the UFC had really consolidated its dominance of this sport. And uh, how how did you feel about it, both with, uh, I guess, the the UFC over there on free television, on ESPN and also on ESPN Plus and Bellator now beginning to make itself at home over on Showtime? Uh, What kind of feelings did you get and and what what were your observations that you came away with?
1: Yeah, you know, it was a strange moment for me when partway through the night, I was watching both these events on my computer, had two tabs open, going back and forth. And then in one of those typical UFC moments between fights where we're just throwing a bunch of filler up there uh, because we're not ready to start the next fight yet. And I realized, wait a minute, I don't have to live this way. I could just, I could, I can mute this tab, flip over the other one on Showtime and actually watch fights, actually watch the sport that I came to watch rather than just the endless hype reels and that same Michael Chiesa, Justin Gacy commercial over and over again. It's been a long time since it really felt like you had two MMA competitors going at it same night with events where you don't feel like there's a huge difference in quality going back and forth. Like I can't really remember the last time that we had that situation in MMA. I feel like we had it on Saturday night.
0: Yeah, it's got to be good for the sport, you would think, and and perhaps good for the athletes in the long run, uh, if we are able to have some competition. And exactly what competition Bellator represents for the UFC, maybe we'll talk about coming up in in round one. Uh, the numbers didn't look great for Bellator when they came out this this morning. Although uh, I don't think it's a direct comparison uh, to try to put the numbers that the UFC is doing when it's when it's out there on free ESPN up against the numbers that Bellator is doing when it's obviously on a four pay premium channel like Showtime. But uh, I I don't know, man, if if Bellator can continue to produce what feels like urgent content or content that you have to watch if you are an actual hardcore MMA fan, it will be interesting to see where this goes, Uh, whether or not uh, the MMA audience will give them the chance that I feel like they deserve or whether or not uh, the UFC has made the proper calculus that just some fights is going to be good enough for the TV audience that is going to tune in over there on ESPN. And I'm not sure which way the wind would blow if uh, if this becomes an ongoing thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think... I know we love to compare ratings all the time because that just feels like something that we can understand. But- Especially
0: today. <laughs> now, we haven't talked about ratings in this sport for a long time, but suddenly yeah. today... Seemed like we were destined to have a ratings discussion today, and I thought to myself, who does this benefit?
1: You, you you over there, just, I, you can't pull one over on Chad Dundas. No,
0: tinfoil hat squarely no. in place. Whose idea was this, just, and who does this benefit for us, suddenly out of the blue, to be discussing these ratings here this week?
1: Quay bono, motherfuckers, Chad Dundas asks, with one raised eyebrow. Uh, I would just say, though, that if you were watching Bellator on Showtime, you were seeking it out. Yeah. You know about it beforehand, and you went to go find it. You could be watching UFC just some fights on ESPN by virtue of being in a sports bar. Yeah. And so it is not like a direct comparison. However... I also think that if you're Bellator, you you probably made your peace with that a while ago, didn't you? When you made the move over to Showtime where you 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 knew where this one was leading and it was not the just like massive ratings numbers on a premium cable network.
0: Right, right. Yeah, uh, a bunch of casuals fucked up and watched the wrong show. That's my takeaway.
1: <laughs> they will they will do that.
0: In any case, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. This show drops most Mondays for free in your timeline or podcast libraries. And if you're having fun right now, you absolutely need to check out what's going on over at patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben folks, and I are party rocking over there with three additional podcasts every single week. If you don't get your MMA fix from this show, you can check us out during the Wednesday live chat. Uh, where we spend an entire hour answering questions from the beloved patrons of the co-main event. Or you can check us out for the Friday Power Hour podcast, which is an additional hour of curated MMA talk. It features the dreaded but amazingly named co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour Power Rankings. It's always fun. And last but not least, for the true heads, the top-tier patrons, we got the Thursday Movie Club this week. Uh, we are carrying on with Charlie's Theron Movie Month over there. We watched Monster... Last week, which was uh, an interesting viewing that I think we both enjoyed, and this week we're going to be talking about Bombshell, where Charlize Theron plays Fox News personality Megyn Kelly, so those, we always get into an interesting discussion over there on the movie club. We got music this week from our guys Foreign Cash, an LA-based production duo. If you like what you hear from them on the show, you can check out more from Foreign Cash, at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreigncash. Remember, that's C-A-C-H-E in cash, Foreign cash. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, A.J. McKee is a big fucking deal. Will MMA fans treat him that way, so long as he stays in Bellator? And in round number two, who's ready for either Derek Lewis or Cyril Gaughan to become the clears throat throat) interim baddest man on the planet and in round number three all accounts say that amanda nunez and her family are feeling better after their covid scare but what does her withdrawal leave to get excited about at ufc 265 all that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff but first like we always do about this time let's do a little bit of listener mail listener mail The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Travis Lieb, who writes, Did Sean Strickland really say that he wants to kill someone in a fight? We are used to hearing fighters say that they are willing to die in the cage, but a fighter saying he wants to kill someone else is new territory. Was he just saying stuff? So, of course, Ben, Sean Strickland uh, emerged with the unanimous decision victory over Uriah Hall this weekend at the UFC. Over there on ESPN and then in the aftermath. Isn't like Sean Strickland has, I don't know if you want to say, made a name for himself in the UFC by doing this, but he's been pretty uh this is pretty on brand for him, I think you would say, just kind of being a a a wild and crazy guy who seems to relish the violence of a cage fight. And in answer to the question of is he just saying stuff, yes. Yes, he is just saying stuff here. Uh, But he did say this at the press conference that that uh, he wouldn't mind killing somebody in a cage fight and also that he's probably the last guy that the UFC wants to have uh, as its champion, which maybe not a great pitch for yourself here uh, in the crowded middleweight division. But he said it all the same. A unanimous decision victory for Sean Strickland over Uriah Hall. Pretty lopsided. 50-44, 50-45, 49-46 in their five-round main event. Does this bug you at all, or do you just see... Are are we just rolling our eyes at crazy, crazy Sean Strickland uh, just doing his thing, running his gimmick out here in the UFC? First of
1: all, to correct you on a fact, he did not say, I wouldn't mind killing somebody. He said, I would love nothing more. than to kill somebody in the ring. Direct quote. Nothing more. He repeated that. It would make me super happy. I would own that shit, too. I don't know if that makes me liable, if I might have to say, I'm sorry if the cops came, which I'm going to pause here for an editorial note. The police notoriously won over by apologies. You know, if they think that you've done something wrong. As long as you say, I'm sorry, they go, well, okay, fair's fair, and they leave. Um, I might have to say, I'm sorry if the cops came, but I would own that shit own it man be a psychopath it's fucking fun so so that's that's what is going on over there with sean strickland and the thing is i
0: soft peddled it without without even meaning to (laughs) part of the The strickland lobby over here
1: it's like it's not like uh it's not like the question was Hey, Sean, uh, so-and-so from BJPenn.com. How would you feel if you killed somebody in the cage? Like, 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 he just keeps taking it there. And as far as, like, is he just saying stuff, I mean, I kind of believe that Sean Strickland would not be overly troubled by killing an opponent in the cage. I do believe that. I also believe that he is not wrong when he says stuff about how you know the, he's the last guy the UFC would want as champion because of this sort of image that he projects. He does effectively project this idea of, like, I am not at all hung up on the issue of hurting other human beings for money and other people's entertainment. Like, that, that does not bother me at all, and in fact, I enjoy it a great deal. And if Sean Strickland were not... If, if this were not a, a viable way to make a living, if he did not have this outlet, probably something bad would happen for Sean Strickland and others. I believe that. I believe him when he says that. And something about it, though, is just like, I mean, I remember when people got real worked up about Frank Mir saying that he wanted to kill Brock Lesnar. And it's like, eh, okay, it's it's a sensitive subject, especially in a sport like this one where we have already this defensiveness against the, the long history of people saying that this is brutal human cockfighting and should be outlawed. And so people, I think, for a while would kind of overreact. For me, when I hear stuff like this, I just kind of shake my head and go, man, you, you don't have to say everything you think, you know, you could, you could keep some of this just knocking around in the old mind brain. We don't need to, We don't need to hear how you think you would feel hypothetically about killing another professional fighter in the cage. Also, I i mean, I wrote this, uh, in my post fight column, but like you just went five rounds with Uriah Hall where you were beating him up and didn't put him away. So I don't know if Sean Strickland is the biggest danger to kill somebody in the cage. Let's, let's all just admit that if somebody dies in the cage, the most likely scenario is that Francis Ngannou has caved in another human being's skull with one punch. Like he is the goddamn uh, mountain in game of thrones or like he he knocks somebody's head actually off their shoulders. That's that's how we're going to mess around and get ourselves in trouble in the sport. It's not Sean Strickland who I agree does sort of take a certain glee and I think like it the the kind the personality traits that he is talking about here that I do believe he has genuinely. I think they did help him win that Uriah Hall fight. Like he got into a fight there with somebody who maybe was like physically a little faster than him uh could do some more things than he could do but he just got that guy to be in like a a, a toughness match a dog fight of where we're just going to stand here and punch each other and that suited him more than it suited Uriah Hall but you still don't have to show up and volunteer your your glee for man's inhumanity to man that is not necessary
0: uh funny you brought up Frank Mir his his broadcast career has kind of never recovered from him saying that about Brock Lesnar. Frank Mir, uh, like a guy who's not bad as a color commentator in the booth, like has never really gotten back to a regular commentary gig in the wake of that Brock Lesnar comment. But I'm sorry, I'm I'm gonna do this with my hands to denote the seriousness of the situation. Just as a point of clarification here, is the way that you decided to take Your rhetorical strategy toward Sean Strickland saying he would love nothing more than to kill someone in the cage. The place you decided to go with that as a as an MMA reporter was to say, I don't know if he's got it in him.
1: Nope. We know Francis Ngannou is the biggest threat to continued life on Earth once you get in the cage with him.
0: So your take is, I don't know that Sean Strickland is capable. You don't know if he's if he could kill someone. I dare you,
1: Sean Strickland. I dare you to go out there and kill somebody in the... I'm just saying, there are people who concern me about that they might accidentally kill somebody. And, like, I could understand if it was a topic that even came up when Francis Ngannou was at a press conference where people were like, Francis, are you ever concerned that your, your own power may result in a tragedy? And I would th- expect Francis to have a very thoughtful, philosophical, in-depth, and, like, surprisingly... Like all at once hits you, how deep it is, sort of answer to that. That that has grace and wisdom and empathy. No one even asked Sean Strickland. Nobody was like Sean. Were you ever concerned you were gonna kill him in there? <laughs> Didn't come up That's Didn't that's, come up
0: for a reason. That's just an interesting way to take it from you that <laughs> Sean Strickland's psychotic rage is all talk. He just doesn't have it. No, I, be- doesn't have I believe the ability. he believes
1: it. I believe that he would he would genu- like I, I, you know that there are some people out there who might like talk like this, and then if it actually happened, they would be haunted by it the rest of their careers, and uh, understandably so. I don't think Sean Strickland's one of those people. I think if it did happen, Sean Strickland would be like, "Well, we can check that one off the old bucket list. Killed somebody in the cage. Uh, let's see what's next. Oh, want to go on a hot air balloon ride?" But you're
0: That's not. That's the next thing. You're not worried. Is the point? The pillow nope. fists of Sean Strickland. <laughs> Barely do it's, any damage at all, says Ben Folks in his official column from The Athletic. Go check that out. My,
1: my list of people who I am concerned are going to commit murder in the cage. There, there's a lot of names before Sean Strickland.
0: I hope he doesn't find out that you said that. Uh, (laughs) Next question this week comes to us from Brendan Faherty, who writes, Bellator just finished a 16-man Grand Prix tournament without a single injury replacement or alternate during a pandemic, ending in a hometown fighter becoming a superstar. Is this Scott Coker's greatest MMA promotional achievement ever, considering the unlikeliness of it all coming together as it did? Now, of course, coming up in round one, we'll be talking about AJ McKee's victory over uh, Patricio Pitbull, to become the Bellator Featherweight Champion, to win this Grand Prix tournament. But I think it behooves us for a second here to take a step back and take a long-range view at this Bellator uh, Featherweight tournament, which did, in fact, come off without a hitch, albeit over a kind of a long period of time. I think Bellator has been sort of smart in the way that it has scheduled these Grand Prix tournaments to, to give itself a little bit of wiggle room, just in case it needs time for someone to return from a minor injury or it needs to uh, shuffle the deck somehow because, you know, there's a contract dispute or any number of what these things happen that, that can scramble a tournament bracket. But yeah, man, this featherweight tournament played out as scheduled, mostly according to chalk, AJ McKee, now you're a 145-pound titleist over there in Bellator. This is, like, I think, a legitimately significant achievement for Bellator to have pulled this off, regardless of, of whether or not it will be heralded that way in the MMA community. It seems like kind of one of the biggest happenings in the sport of the year to me. Well, I, I
1: agree that it's a a great... Accomplishment to be able to pull this off when there are so many things that can go wrong in tournaments, like we've talked about before. That, you know, a tournament, the upside is that it grants instant meaning and significance just because of the nature of like how it feels that we're winnowing the competition down to get to one lone survivor. We understand that as like a martial arts concept. It makes a lot of sense to people and it does make you feel like by the time you get to the end of it, okay, like you've you've created a star, even if you didn't have one beforehand. I also, though, think that it's not like they just put this together and hoped for the best, that you put it together in one of your deepest divisions, where you had a dominant champion and you had some star potential already there. And so it was like, I think it was where good planning meets good execution meets a little bit of luck yeah and i mean granted like the having a pandemic erupt in the middle of it is an added twist and that's probably a big part of why it took close to like two years to really get this thing done but uh, to like the point of the question like i agree we can say like okay good job bellator that you actually pulled this off and you had a lot of lucky breaks but also like you had a good idea to begin with. Like, you didn't just pick a division at random and say, we're going to do a tournament in that one. Like, you picked the one where you knew you had some good fighters, some good people, and that you knew you had a pretty good chance to to end up with something good by the end. And like we talked about before, this was pretty much the best case scenario to have these two guys end up in the finals, and then you get a decisive quick finish in the end where, Uh, AJ McKee gets to win in front of a hometown crowd and now you you got that guy to move forward with like it it is uh, fortunate in some ways but it also like because Bellator made some right moves to put itself in that situation to begin with
0: so you're saying that proper preparation prevents piss poor Mm -hmm. performance there you go the piece just gotta hammer that out there next question this week Comes to us from Roy E. Orland, who writes, Scarlett Johansson is suing Disney for $50 million. Seems her contract stipulated a share of box office, and then Disney decided to simultaneously release Black Widow on streaming, for which she gets no cut. Kinda reminded me of a certain organization, negotiating with certain athletes without mentioning that those pay-per-view points might not be as lucrative as they once were. Since said organization cares less about pay-per-view than hitting its 42 events a year or that the athletes finances might not include those condom Depot paychecks soon. Just thought about the similarities and differences differences between Disney entertainment holdings. Uh, an interesting note here, obviously Disney, the parent company of ESPN, uh, the UFC's broadcast partner. Uh, did you see the statement that Disney released here after Scarlett Johansson? Like it basically accused them of, of kind of negotiating in bad faith and then, uh, breaching their contract they were basically like this statement is grotesque to be made in the middle of a global pandemic you should be ashamed of yourself scarlett joe i'm paraphrasing now obviously but they had this statement and
1: in an accent
0: yeah Yeah. well it's my disney accent and then i saw somebody on twitter immediately was like if your response to being accused of breach of contract includes talking about how someone is heartless for bringing this up during a pandemic you absolutely breached that contract. 100%. 100% <laughs> yeah. breach of contract.
1: Well, yeah. It'd be like, how dare you be so greedy as to want more of this money that we insist on keeping all for ourselves? Yeah. Like, uh, this is a good point, though. And as Roy Orland points out, there have been several of these sort of changes along the way for UFC fighters. And honestly, I put this one on UFC managers for not pushing back harder on some of this stuff. Because I remember when first of all, the the move to the Reebok deal where it's like, okay, guess what? The sponsors that you like some of you have really been depending on are going away and being replaced with a very meager payouts under this new policy. And a lot of you are under existing contracts that you signed with the understanding of like, this is how it works, that you can get your own sponsorships. We're not going to revisit those contracts at all. We're not going to do anything to help make it right. We're just going to plow ahead and see what, what the hell you think you want to do about it. And a lot of the the people got mad about it. Fighters got mad about it. There was some grumbling from some of the managers, but nobody really did anything. Everybody, I think... Uh, As we've talked about before, managers have an incentive to keep on the UFC's good side. Also, a lot of them have been through it before where they see... Remember when UFC wanted everybody to sign away their likeness rights so they could do a video game and they will cut a motherfucker if you push back on that at all. And so nobody wanted to risk that. Everybody just said, okay, we're rolling over. And then when you move over all your pay-per-views to ESPN+, Plus, you're putting up another paywall. You're probably decreasing the number of pay-per-views you're going to sell, but you're increasing the, the amount of money that gets funneled straight into the UFC's pockets. And now you have all these champions who worked their entire careers to get to this point because being a champion gets you a cut of the pay-per-view. That's what made it lucrative. Now the UFC's made a deal that's going to mean fewer pay-per-views sold, but more money for the UFC. And what do you guys say? Uh okay. Like we guess that's fine too. Like there are plenty of those situations where like that would have been or should have been a trigger point for them to say like wait a minute. We signed a deal with one understanding and now you're changing it without any sort of compensation on our end and we need to sit down and have a talk about that. And they didn't do that at all because they're scared of the UFC and they don't want to deal with that pushback. That's on the managers.
0: Next question this week comes to us from Taylor loyal who writes lately. I've noticed a lot more UFC fighters and former fighters appearing in movies and TV shows. Most recently, Paul Felder had a small part as an MMA champ on the show hacks on HBO max is this a result of Endeavor owning the UFC? Do you guys have any specifics on how this all works as a function of the UFC contracts? Also a tip for the well-rounded fight fan if you have HBO Max, watch Hacks. Uh, imagine my surprise, Ben, when my wife and I are tooling through the first season of Hacks over on HBO Max, and you get to, uh, I believe, the second-to-last episode of the first season, and there's Paul Felder showing up in this thing uh, as the... the uh, the fiance of the daughter of the main character here uh he does great like paul felder does a great job in this thing flex has some some like pretty legitimate acting chops even though he has a kind of a small part and he is in fact playing an mma fighter so he's kind of he's being a dumber version of paul felder in this in this thing but he does a great job he does he does a really good job my guess is that it doesn't have anything to do with endeavor but I could be wrong. I think for the most part, it seems like the UFC fighters are mostly on their own for uh, trying to put together these outside gigs still, uh, regardless of who owns the UFC. And if I had to guess, although I have no Intel in this, uh, Hacks also stars Caitlin Olson, who was uh, famous for her, uh, her turn on always sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, and, I would bet that there is a, uh, I bet that there's a connection there between Kaylin Olson and Paul Felder, um, who is Paul Felder also from Philadelphia. So uh, it's probably a personal relationship thing. is my is my guess, and I don't necessarily know that the UFC fighters are still getting a ton of help from Endeavor lighting up these outside gigs. But I could be wrong. Maybe Endeavor's pulling some strings, landing landing gigs for these people.
1: Okay, I haven't seen this show, but I think maybe it sounds to me like we might be shortchanging trained actor Paul Felder because we give him a TV gig and the only thing we could think of for him to play is an MMA fighter Paul Felder I think could actually do better than that like I, but i mean it wouldn't be impossible for me to believe that if these entertainment industry people are putting together the show and we need somebody to play an MMA fighter in this uh, bit role on this thing. And then somebody goes, Oh, well, you know who actually has some acting stuff that we know of uh, is because he does commentary. um, But also like was actually a fighter himself is this guy, Paul Felder. Like it wouldn't be impossible to imagine that that's, that that helps, uh, especially because he is on the commentary side now and that people are, are seeing what he can do. On that part of it more so than just like looking around the UFC roster and being like, who could play an MMA fighter? Like, I don't think there's a whole lot of attention being paid to just trying to find these kinds of gigs for UFC fighters. But I could see a situation where somebody knows about Paul Felder who wouldn't otherwise uh, just because of that. But I thought the thing that Endeavor owning the UFC was supposed to do was to help fighters, like active fighters, get a bigger profile profile for being fighters like that was a big part of one of those initial investor pitches was like hey we're gonna make this company a lot more efficient in part because we're gonna get rid of a lot of people who work for the ufc now who do stuff like you know Trying to market and promote and advertise these guys because we won't need it. We'll be able to leverage entertainment industry contacts. Like we'll be able to get them on the Stephen Colbert show or get them on like some of these late night talk shows and get them out there so that people hear about them and then create more interest in actually seeing them fight. And that's the part that I've been surprised has not happened that much because and and maybe it's just a function of them feeling like the way the UFC makes money now and the way it works is that you don't have to, like you don't need to make these people into bigger stars. And maybe if you do, you just create headaches for yourself having to negotiate them with them. Once they think that they're big stars.
0: Hacks is pretty good. I what re- is it? I recommend it. It's uh, it stars Gene smart who you and I will remember from watchmen. Okay. She's, she's always good in everything that she's in. It's like a, uh, a, a comedy about a young edgy, hollywood writer who kind of gets loses her job for for making a dumb tweet which i think is something we all can relate to and then uh has to take a job as a writer for this sort of aging uh vegas comedian like one of these people that has a residency in vegas and like she's trying to breathe some new life into her act so she hi- hires this woman from la and it's a you know how are they ever going to get along kind of a scenario
1: and then paul felder is going to show up and lend some words of wisdom
0: Yep, Paul Felder shows up okay. because maybe Frank Grillo and, and Nick Jonas were booked elsewhere. I don't know. I'm not sure. You son of a bitch. Anyway, that's a, he does a good job. Paul Felder does a great job. Uh, trained
1: actor. Actually trained actor. Yeah.
0: Uh, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you got a question, comment, or concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, I don't know. Maybe you want to talk about how Ben Folks doesn't think old pillow Fitz Sean Strickland is capable of killing anyone in the cage. Just not dangerous enough. It's the problem with Sean Strickland. You can hit us up about that. Uh, as for right now, though, you can do it by going to the website, co clicking the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. then we mentioned at the top of the show that the Bellator Featherweight Grand Prix wrapped up on Saturday night. AJ McKee fulfilling his destiny in some ways, becoming the Bellator 145-pound champion, winning this tournament uh, with a quick and easy victory over the previous defending champion, Patricio Pitbull, a guy who himself is very, very highly regarded at that weight took AJ McKee just a minute and 57 seconds and one premature celebration to stop the defending champion via technical submission choked him unconscious uh sort of with a guillotine choke wins this tournament wins that title this morning the tweet from uh, Kevin Ioli over there at Yahoo Sports came out to Tell us the ra- the ratings here. I'm just going to read it from Kevin Ioli. says The Strickland versus Hall UFC card averaged seven nine seven thousand seven hundred ninety seven thousand viewers on ESPN and peaked at nine hundred fifty three thousand viewers. Bellator averaged eighty five thousand and peaked at one hundred seventy seven thousand during the Pitbull McKee main event. Uh, some people are making a big deal about that today. I don't necessarily know. Uh, how, mu- how much stock I can put in the ratings at this point for a, a ton of reasons, some of, which, some of which we've already discussed. Bellator is over there on Showtime. The UFC is putting on events on ESPN. I don't. If you're Bellator, I don't even know if you need to worry right now about any manner of head-to-head metric between you and the UFC. The thing that I think you need to worry about, especially as it concerns AJ McKee, is that you have this guy now who seems like he could be a legitimate and considerable star for Bellator. I'm not sure the numbers bear that out to this point. So the question is, Ben, to you, is Bellator capable of turning AJ McKee into the kind of MMA star that it feels like he deserves to be? And I guess another way to put that would be, can AJ McKee reach his potential as a possible star in this sport so long as he stays with Bellator? Yes or no?
1: I think yes, it's possible. I also think it's difficult, and I think it's difficult for a couple of reasons. One is that, especially in this sport, in order to really reach that next level, you need a foil. you know, you need somebody else to help you in that pairing to really generate a lot of interest, because it's one thing to be a great fighter and to be like an engaging uh, magnetic personality who people want to watch and want to hear from. But in this sport, you need a dance partner. You need somebody. Pitbull, I think, was a really good one for this purpose, for this this tournament, because it's like wh- the hardcores know who he is. They respect what he can do. They know that he's a really good fighter and has been a dominant champ. And so when you come up against that guy, that generates a lot of interest. And I think that you can even, whether you do it now or a little bit down the road, get people excited about a rematch at lightweight, you know, because Pitbull is a champ champ. He's got uh, belts in two divisions. So AJ McKee says, I'm going to go take all his belts. Just clean out the guy's closet, basically. Uh, I think that there will be some interest in that. And you get people excited about a rematch that way. That's only going to get you so far. And one of the problems of doing it this way in a tournament is that by the end, you've kind of cleaned out the most notable talent in the division. If you take a 16-man tournament, you put everybody you had kind of in that tournament. And it's hard to circle back and take somebody else from that field and say, like, okay, now we're going to get you hyped to see this guy who did not make it through the tournament against A.J. McKee as a new champ. I mean, you still have some people like, you know, Mads Burnell looked pretty good in this and his win. Uh, you can make some of those fights. It's just tough to get people all the way amped about that unless you have somebody else that you could either build up or go get for AJ McKee to have that real foil. And that's the situation that I think is like, that's tough for Bellator. Uh, is because somebody was asking me about this in my mailbag today, about how like what you, the, the problem that you have if you're Bellator and you're trying to get marquee attractions uh, that'll bring people over, that'll get new attention that you haven't been getting already. And the two ways to do it are you can go out and you can buy those people when they're free agents from the UFC or wherever else, uh, or you can build them up internally. But both those things are kind of difficult because... If you go out and buy them, a lot of times they come in pretty expensive. And we've seen, especially in other divisions like the heavier divisions, the people who Bellator has been able to get that way are people sort of the near the end of their career. Like the, the UFC has decided that they are past their usefulness to the UFC and so kind of lets them be uh, on the open market to begin with, like even allow them to reach free agency. And then that's when Bellator can come in and start to negotiate for them. Uh, And so that has some downsides, but building them up like they've done with AJ McKee. I mean, I think that this, it makes a powerful argument to other fighters. If you're thinking about early on in your career, Bellator or the UFC, because if you ask me like, would AJ McKee have reached this level of, you know, attention and the chance to fight for a belt and a million dollar bonus at this point in his career, if he were just another guy in the UFC, I say, no. Yeah. There's no way that he would have reached this point, like, this quickly in his career. So in that way, it's a strong argument for Bellator. But then once those guys get there, they tend to turn around to Bellator as AJ McKee's already showing some signs of doing and saying, like, okay, I'm your star, I'm your guy. Treat me like that when it comes time for, like, contract negotiations. And... One of the reasons why it's it would be a compelling argument for other fighters is to look at somebody like Michael Chandler and be like, would you rather go into the UFC when you're nobody begging for a spot on Dana White's contender series or making 20 and 20 and begging for a 50 grand bonus every time when you're just another guy on the roster? Or would you rather build up somewhere else and then move over as a free agent when you were actually the subject of a bidding war? And, and that's the problem is how do you keep those people once you've built them?
0: Yeah. Uh, I think we can say that there's a 0% chance that AJ McKee would have made a million dollars had he signed with the with the UFC regardless of of what level he was at. Um I think you're right. I think if you're Bellator the first thing you need to do is is keep AJ McKee because at this point he seems like perhaps the best promotional chip that you have over there. And number 2, you got to get him some people to fight. And as you mentioned, not only did he fight a bunch of the top contenders already in the featherweight division as part of this Grand Prix tournament. He destroyed them all. He he advanced through this tournament with three first round stoppages and then one third round stoppage and then absolutely pretty much uh, floored Pitbull in their fight together with very little trouble. So... Yeah, he needs he needs some competition over there at this point, and it would be nice to think that the that Bellator would be capable of going out and getting a guy like Max Holloway if he showed up on the the free agent market, or, or you know, uh, getting somebody else to to come over who would be an, a known featherweight contender for AJ McKee to fight. Uh, but the UFC makes it its business to try to make sure that those guys never even hit the market, that they never even. Yeah. Uh, attain free agency because of how the the contracts are structured over there and how they continually extend the contracts to to give you another fight et cetera et cetera but man I, as I said here today, I see no reason to to discount the idea that a j McKee might be the best featherweight in the world. It looks like a a a reasonable possibility after after having watched him advance through this tournament that he could go over there uh and beat the best guys in the u f c and what is more, it's ridiculous to think, and I know that we all know this, but I think that this this notion pervades MMA fandom. It's ridiculous to think that just because a guy is in Bellator, he's not as good of a fighter as the people in the UFC. Uh, AJ McKee looks huge for this weight. He's athletic. He's quick. He's super well-rounded, as you saw in this fight. Uh, he's dangerous everywhere, and he's just stopping people. Right and left. I think he's one of the best people in the world. And now my question is, how does Bellator go about assisting him in proving that and like making the most of his time over there? Because and if you're Bellator, like, you don't want to be the organization that just has people build up their name and then you give them to give them away to the UFC. Like, that's not what you want to do. You want to have some of this homegrown talent. You know, make their careers in Bellator and, and be guys that fans want to tune in to watch. And I think that that's a tough sell in today's market where the UFC has uh, established such dominance and such a stranglehold over everyone's attention.
1: What I hear you saying is that A.J. McKee needs to call out a Paul brother.
0: I mean, he could do worse, right, as, as much as that sucks to say.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It is it is weird to think about what would actually work in terms of building up a little bit more like name value and excitement and things like that. Um, Because it does also like bum me out whenever I think about it. When I hear AJ McKee start talking about like how, hey, I'll take this million dollars I want and I'll put it up against anybody else, a champion in any other organization.
0: He seems to get it, let's just say. AJ McKee, on top of all the other superlatives that I heaped on him, he's also good on the mic and he seems to like understand... The promotional aspect of this thing, him him putting basically putting that million dollar bet out there while it's, you know, an impossibility that he's going to fight anybody under UFC contract. It's still a smart thing to do.
1: Yeah. But it also just like kind of reminds you about the weird way that this sport works where it's like, oh, yeah, we are telling ourselves we're out here trying to see who the best fighter at such and such weight is. And then you have this situation where you're like, man, AJ McKee versus Alexander Volkanovsky would be a hell of an interesting fight to decide exactly that. And it is Absolutely impossible just because of the contractual nature of the way this sport works. I mean, and even like lower hanging fruit, like saying, all right, hey, the PFL, they're. They have a featherweight season where their winner gets a million dollars. Tell him to bring his million dollars over to me. We'll meet and I'll bring my million dollars and we have a winner take all fight. And you're like, man, that sounds like some awesome bare knuckle London prize ring kind of bullshit where we could all meet up at our respective pubs and then travel to a, a open field in the countryside somewhere to watch these guys settle it. And absolutely impossible. We definitely will not be able to do it. And that just kind of sucks.
0: As I said at the beginning of the show, and these these ratings numbers are out, and I don't want to put too much stock into them, but as the UFC, unfortunately, in retrospect, made the correct calculus here, that especially as it pertains to like the ESPN viewing audience and people who might just stumble upon you while they're looking for, a, you know, MLS game or whatever, that they don't really even care who these people are, that they will in fact watch hashtag just some fights and like you can essentially put on week after week after week of an anonymous fight card and that's essentially what most casual viewers want
1: yeah well i think that they made the correct calculation that the value was in the brand name that if you if you get the the brand name that was already there from the beginning and you put the work into building up the brand name rather than the individual fighters then the brand name will be what carries you forward and the fighters will gain value as they are attached to the brand name and not the other way around and i think that that calculation especially like once you are securing the biggest platforms available to the sport that calculation is what ends up
0: being correct all right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to uh, round number two. Ben the pay-per-view price for Tyron Woodley's upcoming fight with Jake Paul came out okay. yesterday, I believe. So here's my question. Are you going to pay fifty nine ninety nine to watch Jake Paul fight Tyron Woodley on August the 29th in Cleveland?
1: You know, I think that I will go over to your house
0: and watch it there. Are you fucking kidding me? No, you will not.
1: <laughs> are Are you telling me that when this fight is going on, you are going to you're going to bid us good day? You're going to retire to your study mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, your your Melville, your Hawthorne, <laughs> yeah, my volumes. You're going to sit there in your your smoking jacket. Mm-hmm. And just tell us that we can let you know how it all turns out. Yeah, I'll find out. That's what you want me to
0: believe. I'll find out on the high fi in the morning. <laughs> well,
1: then I might have to change my "are you fucking kidding me" for you, because I don't know if I believe you. Come on, you this part of you. It's a part of you that's like uh, Tyron Woodley can knock him
0: out. Oh yeah, I've, he, I haven't watched any of these Paul brothers fight live. I haven't beat done your that ass. yet. I'm not gonna do it this time. You fucking kidding me? Sixty bucks. I'll buy another leather-bound volume for that for that price.
1: Are you going to tell me that the price is the thing? That's it. like if it were forty nine ninety nine, you'd be like, okay, I'm in. But if then it, this. if it were tw-
0: if it were twenty bucks, I would think about it. And I had twenty dollars I never wanted to see again. I would think it over.
1: Well, you could always bring your twenty. I'll match it. Sir Nigel will uh, spend a couple of weeks panhandling and come up with twenty. And then the three of us, we got
0: it. Boom! There you go.
1: Bob's your uncle.
0: There we go. All right. What's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week?
1: Jed, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me. Did you see this undercard fight on Saturday between your guy, Brian Barbarina, and Jason Witt?
0: I did. I haven't watched it yet. And uh, the fact that Brian Barbarina damn near died <laughs> uh, when he had to pull out of his, his previous fight made me feel a little bit scared for him. But, uh, but no, are you telling me it's something I need to make time for? I mean, I know...
1: I, or I think I think I know what it is you appreciate about Brian Barberina, his style, his whole vibe
0: yeah, that he brings. Yeah, he said he looks like he might swing on a rope with a cutlass in his teeth and land on the deck of your boat specifically to set it on fire. Like that's yeah, what he's yeah. there for is to set your boat on fire. And then he swings off, exit stage left.
1: That is exactly why I am telling you that this fight is, this is a Brian Barbarina-ass fight right here. (laughs) He lost uh, the majority decision. You know, one judge had it a 28-28 draw, and then the other two judges had it for Jason Witt. I mean, basically, if Brian Barbarina could have stopped, like, one or two more takedowns at crucial moments, he wins this fight. I don't know. At some points, I don't know how Jason Witt was still conscious enough to be getting up and shooting for any takedowns because Brian Barberino was putting it on him. But man, are you fucking kidding me? These like this is the embarrassment of riches talent-wise that the UFC can deal with, that it can have just sort of a throwaway fight night event. The first fight on the main card can be a couple dudes like this at Welterweight who are just gonna go out there and try to remove each other's internal organs on live TV put on an absolutely spectacular bloodbath of a fight and, you know, make basically like manager at White Castle kind of money to do it.
0: Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Manager at guys. White Castle money. It's a new one. I mean,
1: they did they did both get the $50,000 fight of the night bonus, which, I mean, kind of was sewn up the minute they were walking out of the cage after this one. But... I knowing what I know about why you like Brian Barbarina, you will like this fight. I'm just saying that right now. right, I'm
0: going to take your word for it. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
1: had Saturday night, Houston, Texas the Toyota Center Derek Lewis and Cyril Ghosn are going to get in that cage to determine who is the best heavyweight in the world when Francis Ngannou is not available. Yeah. And also when we apparently lost Stipe Muse is his phone number. But in the event of those two things these guys are going to show up and get it on for all and by all I mean some of the marbles.
0: How high really are you? Not very many of the marbles, but, you know.
1: A portion of the marbles.
0: A couple of the marbles.
1: A share of the marbles.
0: Small, small the, share. Minority share. The,
1: the interim UFC heavyweight title. And for all we know, the actual interim itself may be just a matter of months. Yeah. In fact, maybe if we were willing to wait one extra month, there would have been no interim. And yet here we are. What's your current hype level?
0: I mean, nobody ever said this wasn't going to be a good fight. We've always said all along that this is going to be a fine fight. You wind up Cyril Gon and you wind up Derek Lewis and you turn him loose in the cage with the stuff that they do. And they get to do that stuff together. It's probably going to be pleasing to the eye. It's probably going to be a fun fight to watch. There's nothing wrong with it. And indeed, it kind of feels to me like you're it by putting an interim title on the line in this fight I'm sure that the guys are into it I'm sure that they both want to be the interim champ uh for more reasons than one but probably most specifically that it essentially gives you the ticket it's like getting a number one contender ticket uh stuffed in your wallet that you can cash in the money in the bank number one contender briefcase that you could cash in whenever the UFC makes its peace with Francis and gano but there has perhaps never been a mo- a, a less meaningful title. There's perhaps never been a more meaningless interim title in the UFC than this heavyweight one. When the champ's not hurt, he's not unavailable, he's not not ready. He's just not on a long
1: cruise. Yeah. You know?
0: He's just not there that night, it seems. <laughs> so we're going to put an interim title up for grabs. Uh yeah, my hype level is is medium for this entire pay-per-view like if this might be one you want to save your money. For unless you're a you know a big Derek Lewis supporter or a big Cyril Gone guy and you absolutely have to watch this. But as we'll talk about coming up in round number three without Amanda Nunes out there, uh this one leaves uh, some some things to be desired. But I still think you know Derek Lewis and Cyril Gahn are probably gonna have a fun fight just because that's that's the way both these guys roll and that's what we expect from them. And uh, you know, Derek Lewis can always shut the lights off with one punch, and Cyril GaN is gonna go out there with the technical striking that he brings to the table, and it's going to be an intriguing and probably entertaining fight. So no harm done there. One guy is going to get a belt at the end, I guess.
1: A belt, yeah. He'll get uh, something to throw in the the carry-on luggage at the end of it all. And ideally, that will just be, as you said, basically a giant token that says, redeem for one actual title fight at a later date. And it doesn't it seem like the UFC is thinking, hey, Cyril Ghosn goes out there and wins this, most likely. He has the and story,
0: right? Because he's he's from the same gym as Francis Ngannou, Fernand Lopez, who was uh, Ngannou's longtime trainer in France, the guy who got Ngannou into MMA, the guy who actually said, don't mess around with boxing. You, you'll have a much easier time getting to the top in MMA. Let's do that instead. That guy was Fernand Lopez for... Francis Ngannou. My understanding is that those guys are still friendly; that they still have a, a a good relationship. But obviously, with Ngannou living in Vegas and Lopez living in France, they couldn't really carry on that training relationship anymore. So Ngannou is largely training at Extreme Couture now. Fernand Lopez is is Cyril Gons' primary trainer. So you've got a lot of kind of uh, personal connections in the mix. Stuff that you could use to build a fight. Uh, I know that in a perfect world, they would probably want to do this one in France. If uh, if everything is legalized and they can do an MMA fight over there, they would probably do pretty good over there with this bout. Ben, Cyril Ghosn is a almost four to one favorite across the board, according to the odds in this thing. Does that seem a little bit out of whack to you, just knowing that how dangerous Derek Lewis is at all times?
1: Well, I mean, one thing when you just factor in, these are heavyweights we're talking about. At at any point, heavyweights could just surprise you. Somebody gets hit upside the head wrong. But I do think I like Cyril Gahn's chances in this fight. Uh, I don't know if I like him four to one, but it seems to me like the most likely thing is that Cyril Gahn being a big, long, technical striker who is smart and doesn't do dumb shit, doesn't get talked into just standing there, planting his feet and throwing with a guy when he doesn't have to, that he probably picks apart Derek Lewis and maybe puts Derek Lewis away late if if Derek Lewis fades and if starts to, you know, especially if he can work on Derek Lewis's body a little bit and and chip away at the guy. But he also, like, it's probably going to take him some time. It's probably not going to be, if this fight ends in the first round, let's say it'll be to Derek Lewis's benefit most likely. It pro- more likely it goes a few rounds with Cyril Gon doing the thing he does and just refusing to do the thing that Derek Lewis kind of needs him to decide to do. Like That's the problem with, like as much as I like everything Derek Lewis brings to the table, especially when he's dealing with somebody like this, like a, a taller, lanky striker, or even when he's dealing with guys who are really good wrestlers, he needs you to decide to do the thing that he would like. Because he doesn't necessarily have the capability to make you do it. And I think that that'll be his problem in this fight. And I think Cyril Gan is a smart fighter. I don't think he decides to do that. And I, I'm i sure, like, Dana White already laid out his thinking on it, his game plan, which is, like, basically, Cyril Gan probably wins. He didn't say this, but it feels like the subtext. Then he's undefeated. Like you said, they have this shared personal story. Fresh opponent for Francis Gano, And then you're able to bill it as champion versus champion. And even if the hardcores know that that is complete horseshit, they still want to see that fight. And other people will still fall for the idea. And you have a good, like, ready-made promotional tactic there. And he's probably right. Like, that probably does work to have you to... Put on a big fight there. I think it would probably still work just as well, even if you didn't pull a belt out of the supply closet and make up a phony title fight for them to, to have here. But I think that, that that is what the UFC is looking forward to. And Derek Lewis's one chance is that Zero so Gone stops his feet long enough to stand there, and you can land one big shot.
0: Yeah. Do you think Houston played a significant role in this? We've seen the reports yeah. out there that the UFC has signed a, like a multi- event agreement with these various locations that it's going to go back to Houston perhaps frequently as the pandemic continues to play out in America and Houston is open for business. The UFC wants to pretend like none of that stuff is happening. Uh, so we're going to go to Houston to do our, our pay-per-views. It's getting some, uh, event rights, fees, some location fees there from Houston. Maybe it felt like it needed to do the city of Houston a solid. We needed to send the hometown guy, Derek Lewis, out there for a meaningful fight. Do you think that that was an important factor here?
1: Absolutely. I think that, that, I mean, I don't know how big a factor it was, but it it seemed clear that the UFC knew it stood to make some money by going back to Houston. uh, And you want to put something in there that's of local interest. And we talked about it before, I think, on the the power hour that having uh, Amanda Nunes in there first to defend her title and the UFC basically said, mm, not really enough. We need something else. Derek Lewis has a Houston uh, appeal. We'll just make up a title for him to fight over. And then it ends up kind of working out for you. Once Amanda Nunes has to pull out due to the positive COVID test. So uh, I think the UFC is probably feeling like we were pretty smart here and doing it this way. But it's also like if you're Francis Ngannou and you're sitting around being like, what the fuck you guys like I just won this title not that long ago yeah and it's not like he was sitting around being like peace out I'm gonna be at the beach don't even call me until December it wasn't like he was doing that and so to be like you know what look we are gonna make up a title that sort of undercuts you and that just kind of ignores everything that you just did because this is what the calendar says we need to do. And because we stand to make some extra money that we will not be giving to any of the fighters like that. It doesn't exactly make you feel good about what you're supporting.
0: Oh, plus we still need to figure out where John Jones is at in all this. is he even still lifting all those damn weights? If he's not going to get a chance to fight any of these guys anytime soon. So uh, it's a bit of a strange brew right now at heavyweight. In any case, uh, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, we mentioned it a couple of times earlier in the show, but UFC 265 was supposed to have... As its headliner or co-headliner, Amanda Nunes defending her women's featherweight title, or excuse me, her bantamweight title against Juliana Pena at this event. Uh, But due to her positive COVID test, that fight has been rescheduled. It's still expected to happen at a a future date, but we just don't know when at this point. And that leaves UFC 265 a little bit... Understaffed here. You still have a bantamweight fight between Jose Aldo and Pedro Munoz, a welterweight affair versus Mike Michael Chiesa versus Vicente Luque. A women's strawweight fight Tisha Torres versus Angela Hill, and a bantamweight fight Song Yadong and Casey Kenny rounding out the main card. And then you know some not, uh, you know some notable stuff on the on the preliminary cards. Bobby Green versus Raphael Fiziev gonna be your featured prelim there. Uh, That will be an interesting fight. But for the most part, this shapes up now as a bit of a low wattage UFC pay-per-view. If you're tuning in, uh, you might be tuning in because you like to watch the big fellas bang or whatever. I personally uh, am excited about Kiesa versus Luque. I think that's a hell of a fight at welterweight and one where we're going to get to see if Michael Kiesa can kind of keep it rolling and establish himself as something approaching number one contender status in that division. What jumps out at you here? Is there anything here that you are particularly hyped to watch now that uh, the ritualistic assassination of Juliana Pena has been postponed?
1: Well, uh, I agree that the most significant and interesting other fight on the card is the Chiesa Luque one. Not only just because longtime listeners of the CME will know that we have a soft spot for Michael Chiesa, uh, especially a a grappling first guy from the Pacific Northwest representing Spokane out there. I mean, uh, of course, the CME is going to be interested in that guy's career and. Also, though, this fight is an important one at welterweight. Like, this one, it feels like, of all the other bouts that you see on the main card, the one that has the the highest potential for immediate title implications. Uh, Vicente Luque, also another one of those guys where you're like, this dude is super good and yet seems to show up, fight, remind you that he's super good, and then kind of just disappear yeah. until the next time that you, hear, that you hear from him or you hear that he has a fight booked and... Uh, just kind of a victim of the non-stop schedule in the UFC that people just don't have the capacity to think more about somebody like Vicente Luque. Um, You know, obviously, Angela Hill is a fan favorite, and so when she shows up, people are going to be interested. But the Jose uh, Aldo-Pedro Munoz one, that's one where you have both guys who were just like, had managed to snap some losing streaks by getting a win. And you're going to throw him in there. To me, like, the the Chiesa Luque one should really be getting the second billing. It yeah. should, like, that's how you're going to get me in the door as a fan. I mean, I, maybe we're relying on Jose Aldo's name value for, like, all his many years as a champion. He's earned that. I don't have a problem with that. But if you're selling this to people who are, like, actually really into this sport, the way you do it is you say, like, okay, we got this this heavyweight banger for a belt a physical belt that exists and no one can deny that it is a real thing they can place their hands on. Uh, and then also Mike, yes, and Vicente Luque are going to get in there to, to kind of help determine what the pecking order really looks like at 170 pounds right now. Like yeah. that's, that's the sales pitch for me.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of buy rate number we get out of this. Once it's all said and done, these UFC pay-per-views, at least according to the numbers that have been released through the sports business journal, I've been doing some pretty eye-popping numbers. The numbers have not been bad at all for the UFC uh, pay-per-views, if, if those reports are to be believed. This one, at this point, I don't know how much interest there is, and especially you know coming up in September, UFC 266 uh, is kind of a banger with Alexander Volkanovsky and Brian Ortega fighting for the featherweight title and Valentina Shevchenko and Lauren Murphy fighting for the women's flyweight title. And uh, by the way, Nick Diaz versus Robbie Lawler. Also on that card, I think, you know, if you're if you're balling on a budget out there, having to, to choose your UFC pay-per-views, UFC 266 is probably the one to target. But I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what 265 can pull off now with this interim heavyweight championship fight up there at the top. And, and you know, maybe not a lot else that's going to reach out and grab casual people and draw them in. All right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we can get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Chad,
1: did you know that also on the UFC 265 card, Ed Herman is fighting?
0: Yeah, he's down there. He's on the prelims, short fuse.
1: Did you also know that Ed Herman is... According to uh, Wikipedia, it's an MMA junkie story, so I actually believe it, has the longest uninterrupted tenure on the active UFC roster, oh. making his promotional debut in June June 24th, 2006.
0: That's, that's good for him. Good for the short fuse, man. That's a hell of a run. Did you also know, though, Chad, Ed Herman
1: is on a fucking three-fight winning streak? Yeah, he's he's bounced back. He's been back
0: there. He's been back.
1: You know what? Just as a fellow old guy, this this does my heart good. Yep. Ed Herman, been doing it since back when we watched him at a sport fight event in uh, Gresham, Oregon. He was walking around with the short fuse shirt that looked like he was begging for a lawsuit from Metallica for a ride the lightning. Yep. He, still in the UFC, all these years later. I mean, he was on the season with Mike Bisping, right? And then... Uh, Mike Bisping has long since transitioned out the game to the commentary desk. Ed Herman still on the other side of the fence and still winning fucking fights. Yeah. I'm just saying, if there is a... I don't want to say the people's main event necessarily. If there is the old guy's main event, the, the stodgy old head's main event at UFC 265... I'm telling you right now, Ed Herman versus Alonzo Menifield is it. Okay. I'm just saying. Just saying. Just saying.
0: Ben, uh, have you seen this video of uh, the guy punching Francis Ngannou over and over again in the stomach? I have not. Uh, this is good, good content, my man. Okay. Uh, you got this uh, influencer. Again, this is one of those things where I'm too old to know who this guy is. But Money Kicks apparently is this guy's name. I'm sorry, what? Money Kicks. Hmm. I don't know if he, okay. if he is a, a shoe a shoe gazer a shoe a sneakerhead or if he is uh you know if he makes money with his kicks I don't know it's not his punches apparently because he is here wailing on Francis Ngannou's midsection while Francis Ngannou sips tea from a tiny teacup
1: <laughs> Just <laughs> Okay it's, that it's, is good content.
0: It's good stuff. Uh First of all, though, I'm just saying, am I the only one who might have second thoughts when Francis Ngannou is like, no, man, go ahead. Hit me as hard as you can. I won't get mad.
1: Yeah, it's fine. I don't even care.
0: What's the best case scenario here? That you hit Francis Ngannou as hard as you can and he doesn't even feel it? Or that you hit Francis Ngannou as hard as you can and he does feel it? Like, which I'm just saying, like, I don't know which one of those is the better outcome.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, maybe you hit him once and he, he laughs at you and you're like, you know what? No, I'm going to really lean into this. And then what if you accidentally trigger some, some sort of reflex response in the man?
0: Yeah, sort of Chris Lieben button on my face kind of thing, right? You don't want that to happen. No, you don't. I mean, best no, case scenario, don't. maybe you crumple Francis Ngannou with a body shot and it turns out you are a UFC heavyweight. and You just never knew it because <laughs> you would never been and, in a fight before.
1: And then you have to really quickly get out of there before
0: he recovers you have to you have to run fast and far just saying anyway that is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast thanks everybody for tuning in remember we will be over at the patreon page all week long patreon.com slash co-main event we got the wednesday live chat coming up tomorrow uh the friday power hour in a couple days and of course the thursday movie club coming up in the interim uh thanks for listening We'll see you over there. or We'll be back here one week from today with the proper. As for now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Do you think you could beat Francis Ngano like in a sprint? In, like a foot race? No. O- over what distance do you think you could outrun Francis Ngano? 40-yard Five dash? Do you think you could beat Francis Ngano in a five-mile race? A five-miler? Yep. hmm Yeah. I kind of doubt it, man to be honest.
1: What are you saying? What are you saying about me?
0: I'm not saying anything you didn't say about Charles Strickland earlier. I just don't know that you got had a
1: day. Okay, look.
0: What's your five-mile time? I'll text Francis Ngana and I'll ask what his is. Okay.
1: Ask him first and then tell me, and then I'll tell you mine. No,
0: I'm not telling either I need this to be official.